Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald's Thursday the 1st of December 2022 News. Edinburgh Dog and Cat Home Facing Perfect Storm as Bills Skyrocket. This article is by Emma Sabliak. A perfect storm is brewing for an essential Scottish charity as it faces a staggering 800% rise in energy bills. The Edinburgh Dog and Cat Home, EDCH, which was one of the first animal rescue charities to launch pet food banks, is expecting electricity costs to reach £31,160, while its gas bill skyrockets to £63,735. However, it is also seeing more owners forced to give up their pets and growing prices from its suppliers, whether it is cat litter or food or veterinary drugs, all of it's going up. The energy bill predictions completely floored the chief executive, Lindsay Fife-Jarden. While the charity has been preparing for rising costs, the energy estimates went above what was expected. Ms Fife-Jarden said, We'd already calculated it was about £200,000 of just overhead costs we were going to be increasing, but to receive those electricity and gas costs was just crippling. This is beyond what we could have or should have expected. We will get through the winter, and I'm sure the most of next year, but it's what happens beyond that if we don't stabilise the income that we get. A motion was tabled in Holyrood on Thursday by Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Alex Cole Hamilton, calling for intervention from Parliament to ensure financial support for the EDCH. The MSP said Edinburgh Dog and Cat Home is an absolutely fantastic charity that provides a caring and compassionate environment to animals needing rescue and shelter. As the first charity in the country to provide food banks with pet food, it currently feeds 3,000 animals. Sadly, the skyrocketing cost of energy bills has pushed the home to the brink of closure, especially when it relies so heavily on gas and electricity to keep its animals warm and well-fed. With no financial support in place from either national or local government, the home depends solely on the generosity of its donors. That is why I am today tabling a motion to inspire an intervention from MSPs across Parliament, which will save this iconic Edinburgh institution from collapse. I want to see the Scottish Government working in partnership with City of Edinburgh Council and animal welfare organisations so that EDCH gets the support it desperately needs.
In November, 80 people had approached the charity looking to surrender their pets. The Herald previously reported warnings that rescue centres are facing huge rises in Scots giving up their animals due to the cost of living crisis. The EDCH feeds 3,000 animals each month with their work providing food banks with pet supplies in an effort to stem the tide of owners forced to surrender their pets. Ms Fife-Jardin believes support needs to be provided for charities across the board as the cost of living crisis takes a stronger hold. She said there are going to be a lot more organisations to come who are going to experience these challenges. I feel really very strongly that we're providing an amazing service, but so many people are doing so many good things and it's really easy for these shock moments to pass by. That's why we wanted to raise it, because we think we're raising on behalf of so many other organisations who will also be experiencing these challenges. The appeal for support for the EDCH has already been met with a strong response and the Chief Executive is hugely encouraged by the motion tabled in Scottish Parliament. I am blown away by the love and support we've been given from everybody who we've reached out to, she said. I felt it was really important that we said this was happening now, as opposed to leaving it too late. This article is by Emma Sabliak. The Herald, Thursday the 1st of December 2022. News. Nicola Sturgeon trying to play one set of workers against another. This article is by David Ball. Nicola Sturgeon has been accused of attempting to play one set of workers against another, as the First Minister came under criticism for her efforts in reaching a deal over teachers' pay. The First Minister told MSPs that the Scottish Government is going to every length possible to reach fair agreements with teaching unions around pay. But she faced accusations she was pitting workers against each other in a move labelled disgraceful by opponents. Teachers rejected the latest offer, which would see those earning under £40,107 receive an increase of £1,926 per year, 6.85% for the lowest earners, while those on more would get 5%. Speaking at First Minister's questions, Ms Sturgeon stressed that a fair pay offer has been made to teachers, despite being rejected by unions. She added the Education Secretary is in regular dialogue with all of our teaching unions and spoke with the EIS General Secretary most recently last Friday. These discussions are, of course, ongoing, although the Chamber will be aware that only COSLA, as the employer, can make a formal pay offer to the teachers' unions through the SNCT. The Scottish Government does not negotiate separately with unions on teachers' pay. Labour Education spokesperson Michael Mara accused SNP ministers of having made the latest offers to teachers at the last possible moment. He added it had sat on the Cabinet Secretary's desk 
for over three weeks. Since the announcement of 16 more EIS strike dates, which will close our schools, deprive our children of the education and throw family life into chaos, no dates for negotiation have been sought or fixed. Next week, the SSTA and NASUWT will strike, closing schools again. No attempt has been made to avert that action by this government. Our children have lost so much in the pandemic years. How can they afford a government making so little effort to keep their schools open? But the First Minister rejected the accusations. She said the offer that was made to teacher unions last week was the fourth offer that has gone to unions. Anybody who looks at the efforts this government has made to give fair pay rises and settle any potential for industrial action with the wider local government workforce, with the NHS workforce, will know that this is a government, in contrast with other governments in other parts of the UK, that is going to every length possible to reach fair agreements with our public sector trade unions. Looking at the offer made to teachers, it recognises the impact on the cost crisis on lower paid teachers in particular, with an increase of up to 6.85% for them. The offer is the same offer that has already been accepted by other local government workers. Mr Jan added, I have nothing but admiration for our teaching profession. They are rightly paid higher than other workers in other parts of the local government workforce. But they offer in terms of a pay increase that has been made to teachers. Lib Dem MSP Willie Rennie vented his frustration at the First Minister, accusing her government of not treating teachers with respect. He said, so the message to teachers is, just be grateful, you've had your lot, you're paid enough. That is not the way to treat teachers in this country. To play one set of workers against another is a disgraceful way to treat the people who taught our young people through the pandemic. Instead of making last-minute offers hours before strike deadlines, is it not about time that the First Minister treated teachers with the respect that they are due and gave them a decent pay offer with the budget that she has? But Ms Sturgeon accused the former Lib Dems leader of a pretty shameful tone. She added, We are making an offer this year that recognises the impact of the cost crisis on the lowest-paid teachers and an offer that is as fair as, and gives teachers as much of an increase as, the offer that the janitor and the dinner lady have already accepted. In a fixed budget, we have to try to be fair across all parts of the public sector, and we are seeking to do that. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Thursday the 1st of December 2022 News. Stephen Flynn, the MP tipped to be the SNP's next Westminster leader. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. Aberdeen South MP Stephen Flynn is the favourite to replace Ian Blackford as the SNP's leader at Westminster, with sources suggesting there will be no contest for the top job. 
The Parliamentary Party is due to hold its annual general meeting next Tuesday, which could mean Mr Flynn is in place to face Rishi Sunak at next Wednesday's Prime Minister's questions. His rise to the top comes after two botched attempts to oust Mr Blackford. Last month, the Times reported that Mr Flynn had told senior officials he wanted to take on the top job. The MP later tweeted, I can confirm I've no intention of standing. It is understood he was persuaded not to stand by allies of Nicola Sturgeon. Dundee born and Brechin raised, Mr Flynn has been an MP since 2019's general election when he took the seat off the Tories. His first day in Westminster had to be delayed by two weeks when his wife gave birth to their baby boy three days after the election. Prior to Westminster, he was a councillor in Aberdeen, serving as the SNP's group leader. He also worked as a researcher to MSPs and MPs. Currently, the 34-year-old father of one holds the party's business, energy and industrial strategy brief. His support for the oil and gas industry could see him at odds with Nicola Sturgeon. Last year, when the First Minister wrote to the then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, calling for all new oil and gas extraction licences to be reassessed in light of the climate crisis, he warned about being in a situation where we are ever more reliant on imports. Mr Flynn is a keen Dundee United fan, often travelling down to the city from his home in Aberdeen to watch games. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. Recorded from the Herald on the 30th of November 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Scottish contingent help Australia reach World Cup last 16 by Ewan Payton. Matthew Leckie claimed a five fine second half winner as Australia masterminded a World Cup shock by progressing to the knockout stages with a 1-0 victory which eliminated Denmark. The Socceroos and the Danes were both in danger of crashing out of the tournament due to tinge- due to Tunisia taking the lead against reigning champions France in the other Group D fixture. But Leckie had other ideas and delivered the knockout blow for the Danes, with a superb solo effort in the 60th minute to send Australia into the last 16 for the first time since 2006. The Melbourne City forward ran almost half the length of the pitch and twisted and turned Joachim Mahil before calmly finishing beyond Kasper Schmeichel. Denmark offered little in response, albeit they were denied the penalty by an offside flag when Algerian referee Mustafa Garbel pointed to the spot following Harry Souter's a judge foul on Kasper Dolberg. Graham Arnold's men, who finished the group behind France on goal difference, will face one of Poland, Argentina or Saudi Arabia in the second round on Saturday. With the Socceroos starting the day in second spot, courtesy of their win over Tunisia, the onus to attack was on Denmark. The Danes were initially positive and dominated position against a team 28 places below them in the FIFA World Rankings, only to be frustrated in a forgettable opening period. Australia goalkeeper Matthew Ryan tipped over from Matthew Jensen and unconventionally turned away a dangerous cross from marauding left-back Mahil, while Christian Eriksen dragged an effort wide. Socceroos coach Arnold had spoken pre-match about putting the game on the map a bit more back home, as well as his desire to make the Australian public smile. 
While his compact side were content to sit in and keep things tight, Middlesbrough Riley McGee, McGree tested Schmeichel during a rare foray forward to show they could cause problems in their counter-attack. The pattern of play persisted in the second period before a goal in the other Group D game left both sides in grave danger. News of Tunisia forward Wabi Zarsi opening the scoring against France appeared to filter through to the Al Janab Stadium just before Lecky latched onto McGree's through ball to race clear and finish with a plum. Denmark needed at least two goals to avoid leaving Qatar early, but with their lack of cutting edge, even an equaliser seemed unlikely. Australia endured a major scare 19 minutes from time when substitute Dolberg tumbled in the box before the penalty decision was swiftly overturned. The spirited Socceroos, led impressively by Scotland-born centre-back Souter, defended doggedly and deservedly survived six minutes of added time to upset the Euro 2020 semi-finalists and march on. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 30th of November 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. England's Ben White heads home from the World Cup due to personal reasons. By the Herald Sport. Ben White has gone home from the World Cup due to personal reasons as and is not expected to return to the England camp. The 25-year-old defender was included in Gareth Southgate's 26-man squad for Qatar following an impressive start to the season with Arsenal. White did not feature in England's first two Group B matches and missed Tuesday 3-0 win against Wales through illness. A Football Association statement on Wednesday evening read, Ben White has left England's training base in Al-Wakra and returned home for personal reasons. The Arsenal defender is not expected to return to the squad for the remainder of the tournament. We ask that the player's privacy is respected at this moment in time. No replacements can be made at this stage of the World Cup and Arsenal shared the FA statement on their social media channels, along with the caption, We're all with you, Ben, and a love heart emoji. White was at a second major tournament with England, having been included in the squad that reached last summer's European Championship final. The defender did not make an appearance during the tournament, and has only won two caps since, taking his tally to four. Southgate's initial selection had remained intact until the White News. James Madison looked to doubt after going off during Leicester's final match but was on the bench against Wales having overcome the knee complaint that saw him miss the opening two games. Kyle Walker made his first start since undergoing groin surgery in October as England beat Wales on Tuesday when Calvin Phillips got some minutes under his belt as he builds fitness after a shoulder operation. England kick off the knockout phase with the last 16 clash against Senegal on Sunday after topping Group B. That article was by the Herald Sport. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of December 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Michael Beale adds to Rangers backroom staff with Liverpool's Jack Aid. By Ewan Payton. Michael Beale has added to his first team backroom staff at Rangers. The Englishman has recruited Jack Aid to join as head of performance. Aid signs at Ibrox from Liverpool, where he carried out role of head of elite fitness development and under 21 fitness coach. He joins Damien Matthew, Neil Banfield and Harry Watling in teaming up with Beale in Glasgow. A club statement read, Rangers have made a further addition to their first team support staff with Jack A joining from Liverpool as head of performance. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of December 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Roberto Martinez stands down as Belgian boss following World Cup exit by the Herald Sport. 
Belgian head coach Roberto Martinez fought back the tears as he confirmed his side's 0-0 draw with Croatia was his last game in the job. The 49-year-old Spaniard said he will not be extending his contract, which expires at the end of Qatar 2022, after Belgium failed to get out of their group. Martinez, who led Belgium to a third-place finish at Russia 2018 after taking on the role in 2016, was asked if the hugs he gave his players after being held by Croatia were goodbye hugs. That article was by the Herald Sport. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 30th of November 2022, from the Voices section, Agenda, Working Towards a World Without HIV, by Grant Sugden. Grant Sugden is CEO, Waverly Care. A World Without HIV, could it be possible? Casting our minds back to only a few decades ago, this would have seemed unimaginable. Fear-mongering and homophobia were rife, and an advert featuring a gloomy tombstone with the word AIDS told the British public that a deadly virus was spreading through sex. Don't die of ignorance, the infamous tagline, continues to define how many understand HIV today. HIV-related stigma continues to harm the lives of over 6,000 diagnosed people living with HIV in Scotland today. A recent study by the National AIDS Trust found that most members of the public would be uncomfortable having a relationship with someone who lives with HIV. Only a third of people agreed that they have sympathy for all people living with HIV, regardless of how they acquired it, and many associated HIV with promiscuity and irresponsible behaviour. Society's view of HIV remains rooted in outdated beliefs of the past, and yet we have come so far. Thanks to groundbreaking antiretroviral treatment, people living with HIV cannot pass the virus through sex and can live long, healthy lives. Scotland could be one of the first countries in the world to have zero new HIV transmissions, and the Scottish Government has committed to achieving this by 2030. But how do we get there? How do we stop being stuck in the past and look towards a future without HIV, AIDS, in Scotland and beyond. One step towards getting there is widening access to PREP, a medication taken to prevent HIV. Scotland was one of the first countries in the world to make PREP available in sexual health clinics. However, groups such as communities living in rural and remote Scotland feel it is inaccessible to them. We must ensure that anybody who is eligible and wants to take PREP can do so with no barriers. We also need to increase HIV testing. In order to find people living with undiagnosed HIV, we must increase availability and frequency of tests. Earlier this year, hospitals in London introduced opt-out HIV testing in emergency departments, and this has been incredibly successful in finding and treating those living with HIV undiagnosed. To get to zero new transmissions, we must introduce opt-out testing and find hard-to-reach people who may be living with HIV without knowing it. We won't get to zero transmissions with these actions alone. We must also end HIV stigma. At Waverly Care, we, he- we hear heartbreaking stories of people living with HIV feeling guilt, shame and disgust at themselves because of their status. Tomorrow is World AIDS Day, a good time for focus on challenging negative attitudes and outdated beliefs about HIV whenever you hear them, as education is the only way stigma can be overcome. We cannot move forward if ignorance holds us back. Reaching zero new HIV transmissions is within our grasp. It is not a pipe dream or throwaway policy commitment. We can get there. A future without HIV is in sight, but we would need bold leadership and action to get there. And that was an agenda, please, by Grant Sugden. From the Herald Scotland, 
Friday the 2nd of December 2022. From the sports section, Pelly says his latest hospital visit is a routine one. Pelly has reassured fans his visit to hospital in Brazil is only routine following fears over his health. The 82-year-old continues to be treated for colon cancer, having undergone surgery to remove a tumour during September 2021, and he has required regular ongoing medical treatment. Following reports, Pelly, considered the world's first wor- the football's first world superstar, had been taken back into hospital amid growing concerns for his health. His daughter Kelly Nascimento posted an update on social media stating there was no no, no new dire prediction. On Thursday evening, a post on Pelly's Instagram account looked to ally any serious worries. Attached to a photograph of a get well soon message displayed on buildings at the World Cup in Qatar, the Brazil great wrote, Friends, I'm, in, I'm at the hospital making my monthly visit. It's always nice to receive positive messages like this. Thanks to Qatar for this tribute and to everyone who sends me good vibes. Pele had burst onto the global scene as a 17-year-old at the 1958 World Cup, helping Brazil to their first of their record five successes. Injury affected his contribution to the 1962 and 1966 finals, but he returned to lead Brazil to a third triumph in Mexico in 1970 as part of what is widely regarded as the greatest international team of all time. Officially, Pele scored 757 goals in 831 games during a glittering career from 1957 to 1977, although Club Santos claimed his tally was closer to 1,000. And that article is unattributed. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 2nd of December 2022, from the sports section, Peter Law returns to Celtic as non-executive chairman, report by Aidan Smith. Peter Law has returned to Celtic as a director of the club and the new non-executive chairman. Law will take up his new role in January the 1st, 2023, following the recent retirement of the current chairman, Ian Bankier. The 63-year-old returns to Celtic after previously being the club's chief executive for almost 18 years, a position he retired from in the summer of 2021. Lowell commented, As a lifelong Celtic supporter, it is a great privilege to be asked to take up the position of chairman, having already been part of our great club for nearly 18 years. These are exciting times for the club, and I look forward to contributing to the well-being and success of the club. Our objective, as ever, will be to grow and further develop the club across all areas. Led by an excellent Chief Executive in Michael Nicholson and Chief Financial Officer Chris Mackay, the club has a high-quality management team in place. I will be offering my support and guidance to the board and executive management team to ensure that we continue to drive the club forward and protect and promote the interest of our supporters. Celtic Chief Executive Michael Nicholson added, We are delighted to welcome Peter as Chairman and I look forward to working with him as we continue to progress and develop the club. Peter has a wealth of experience in the football industry at a domestic, European and global level, which is invaluable to the club going forward. Our collective objective is to create a world-class football club that our supporters can be proud of, competing at the highest level, with a strategy based on growth and continuous improvement. On behalf of the board and all of our colleagues at the club, I thank Ian Bankier for his service and contribution to our club, and wish him and his family the best for the future. Celtic's principal shareholder, Dermot Desmond, said, I am delighted that Peter has agreed to take up the position of chairman. He is the outstanding candidate. Peter is a man of the highest quality, someone who has served the club already with real commitment and expertise, and his experience and knowledge of the club, 
as well as the wider global football environment, will help to continue to drive the club forward. He is perfectly placed to work with Michael Nicholson, Chris McKay and the board to ensure we continue to compete in Scottish and European football and to manage the challenges and opportunities in our European context. I would also like to thank Ian Bankier for his excellent contribution to Celtic over a number of years. I join everyone at the club in wishing him and his family every success for the future. Celtic manager Ange Postelicoglu added, It is fantastic news for the club that Peter will be taking up the role of chairman. He was instrumental in bringing me to Celtic. I know the love he has for the club and I know that his wealth of experience and knowledge will be invaluable to us all as we move forward together. I would also like to wish Ian and his family all the very best for the future. Ian Bankier said, I am pleased that Peter has agreed to take on the role of non-executive chairman. Against any reasonable benchmark, Celtic has prospered over the last decade and beyond. This is in no small part due to the stability of the club and the retention of knowledge and experience. Peter will be a most effective sounding board for the executive and a fine representative both domestically and abroad. I would like to thank everyone at Celtic for the support during my term in office. I shall miss them all. I wish the club and the Celtic support all the very best for the future. During Lowell's tenure as chief executive, the club won 29 trophies, including 13 league titles and an unprecedented quadruple treble. Following his retirement as chief executive, Lowell has continued as a director of Celtic, representing the club as a board member of the European Club Association. And that report was by Aidan Smith. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 30th of November 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Glasgow actor James McAvoy glad to leave City after racist taunts by Caroline Wilson, senior reporter. The Glasgow-born actor James McAvoy has said he was glad to leave his home city after a run of the stage play Serrano de Bergerac because of the racist and sexist taunts his female co-stars suffered. The 43-year-old said he was absolutely shocked and dismayed by the abuse levelled at the cast. He said women suffered sexually explicit and violent taunts during their time in Glasgow and went as far as to say their experience made him regret bringing the production to Scotland. The play, which was directed by Martin Crimp and director by Jamie Lloyd, ran for nine sold-out performances at the City's Theatre Royal. A spokeswoman for the theatre said the extremely upsetting incidents had happened elsewhere in the city centre. In an interview with GQ magazine, the Drumchapel-born actor said, cast were amazing, it was brilliant, but it was really saddened to be honest with you, because most of the women of colour in the cast were racially abused pretty much on a daily basis when we were there. I was just really saddened, I was absolutely shocked and dismayed and to use a Scottish word, scunnered. We were delighted to get to Brooklyn and leave Glasgow, it was horrible. The actor said he debated whether or not to tell the story because he was aware it could prompt an angry backlash in his home city. He said, the narrative that Scottish people and the Scottish media want to hear when one of us has gone away and done all right, they like you to come back at home and go, it's rare, it's fantastic, I'm chuffed to be here and there is no crowd like a Scottish crowd. But I was going on stage every night going, I don't want this to be here, I brought this cast here and I don't want to be here. Alison Thewlis, SNP MP for Glasgow Central, said the incidents had damaged the city's reputation. She said, deeply saddened and shocked by the inappropriate behaviour experienced by James McAvoy and his co-stars. Those who behaved inappropriately have damaged the image of Glasgow and they should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. There must be no place for racism and misogyny in our society. Labour leader Anna Sarwar described the reports as heartbreaking. 
while Glasgow City Council said we're saddened to learn of the experiences of James and his cast. Racism and misogyny had no place in modern Glasgow. Police Scotland said it was not aware if the incidents had been reported. A spokeswoman for the Theatre Royal said everyone at Theatre Royal was extremely upset with these incidents which happened elsewhere in Glasgow City Centre. Diversity and inclusion remain a priority for us and we offered appropriate support to the company at the time. The X-Men star has previously revealed he gets stick during visits to Scotland for sounding English. He said his accent reflected the fact that he'd lived between London and America for the last 20 years. By Caroline Wilson. The Herald, the 2nd of December and the Voices section. Hussigate shows the Royals should listen to Meghan Markle by Katrina Stewart. The most telling detail in the latest palace controversy is the line about the name badge. Few but the most interested royal watchers will, prior to this week, have heard of Lady Susan Hussey, Prince William's godmother and former woman of the bedchamber to the Queen. In a recent reshuffle of the royal household following Her Majesty's death, Lady Hussey was moved to be a lady of the household, hosting events for the King. After 60 years of largely under-the-radar employment, the Lady Hussey is, presumably, ruining the latest event she attended. At a Violence Against Women and Girls reception hosted by Queen Camilla, Lady Hussey approached Ngozi Fulani, the founder of the charity Sister Space, and asked her where she is from. Failing to accept the initial answer of Hackney, the former lady-in-waiting persisted with a line of questioning that grew increasingly intrusive and persistent, querying Miss Fulani's citizens and citizenship and origins. What struck me was the opening of Miss Fulani's account of proceedings. She said Lady Hussey had pushed her aside her hair to read her name badge. The entitlement of someone touching another person without consent in that way, rather than merely asking their name. It takes balls or real thoughtlessness or extreme privilege to do that. Or all three. As is the modern way, Miss Fulani tweeted about the experience. It was picked up by the press and, rapidly, the palace announced Lady Hussey had stepped down from her role with sincere apologies. An unedifying and frustratingly distracting incident for King Charles and the royal household. Great timing for Harry and Meghan, though. The day after the Stushi, Netflix dropped the first trailer for the Duke and Duchess's new fly-in-the-wall documentary. Part of Lady Hussey's role as a courtier was to aid new arrivals in adapting to the ways of the royal household, including Meghan Markle and Princess Diana. You'd probably want to keep those off your CV. But you can imagine the Duchess of Sussex's thoughts on the matter and her sense of vindication. The fact that Harry and Meghan have so often and so very loudly highlighted their concerns about racism at the palace also undermines the repeated line from supporters that Lady Hussey's age puts her beyond reproach. There must, surely, have been conversations across the palace households about the issue. Lady Hussey is 83, but age is no excuse, particularly given the context. Much is being made of her 60 years of royal service by those attempting to justify the argument she should stay in her role. However, that fact supports the opposite take. She has been a companion to two queens 
and will have been drenched in the moors of diplomacy. She is the daughter and sister of earls, mother to another's queen companion, Dame Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, and, this was a new one on me, holder of the sash of special category of the Order of the Aztec Eagle. Lady Hussey will also have had the opportunity to meet myriad people from myriad ethnicities and backgrounds and simply should know better. Other supporters point out that asking where someone is from is hardly hate-filled. Sure, but context and the framing of the question are vital. There can be a genuine curiosity to the question, where are you from? And when asked appropriately, can lead to interesting and enlightening conversations. On my way back from Glasgow Airport recently, the taxi driver had an accent I couldn't place, so I asked him about it. But in the context of talking about travel and him mentioning first that he'd moved to Scotland. He was from Chechnya, it turned out, and talked engagingly for the journey about the country and his family. For Lady Hussey, the reply Hackney should have been enough. It was the persistent probing that led to the conclusion that this was no innocent question but something more insidious. One of my favourite twists in the story is people defending Lazy Hussey by styling her a voluntary worker, as the kids used to say, lol. There is a huge element of the entitlement of class at play here, but before anyone starts thinking that we do things better in Scotland, we still have the actor James McAvoy's words ringing in our ears. Anyone who finds Mr McAvoy's revelations about the terrible time his co-stars had during the run of Serrano de Bergerac in Glasgow to be shocking have really not been paying attention. McAvoy also mentioned that these racist incidents in Glasgow were aimed at female members of the cast. Again, surprise! Women have been detailing the problem of street harassment, and worse, in the city for a long, long time. Regarding racism, you only have to look at any social media posts about multicultural Govan Hill on the city's south side to find some truly dicey views. Overtly racist, or of the old, I'm not racist, but variety. There's a reason the city had a far-right candidate stand at the most recent council elections. They thought they had a fighting chance of a seat. As someone who's tried it consistently for more than a decade, challenging the entrenched views of people in some quarters is nigh on impossible. They can't reflect on their views due to a sense of grievance. I'm not unsympathetic to it. It's hard to honestly evaluate your own flaws. But it's impossible to deal with an issue when those causing it are too busy taking offence to listen. I imagine that's a problem as universal as to the pubs of Allison Street as it is to the royal palaces. If you listen to various anecdotes from people who have spoken out in the wake of Mr. Fulani's experience, Miss, excuse me, Fulani's experience, this isn't a one-off or uncommon. The speed of the palace's response and the snappy statement from Prince William show that there's an understanding of how Lady Hussey's comments look and their impact. It would be folly to put this down to a case of one bad apple. Rather, it's a systemic issue and one that needs to be further confronted. It's a sensitive time for the House of Windsor. 
Not only is the Netflix documentary imminent, but Harry's tell-all memoir is due in the next year. It would certainly be wise to get ahead of it, not least at a time of flux for the royal family, and as the new king and new prince of Wales seek to establish themselves as switched-on successors, modernize. The Herald, the 2nd of December, and the Voices section. Herald Diary. Something for the weekend, sir. By Lorne Jackson. Saucy slogan. A diary mention of circumventing machines often found in gents' toilets takes reader Jim Gordon back to the late 1970s when the Sunday Mail devised a marketing slogan printed in newspapers which bombastically crowd about the news-gathering acumen of male reporters. If it's going on, it's going on, was the slogan's boast. The very same statement soon afterwards appeared on numerous toilet vending machines around Glasgow, all of which were selling gentlemen's accessories for the weekend. Corny Crimbo Festively minded reader Jennifer Sinclair brought home an artificial Christmas tree which she proudly showed to her husband. His branches are coloured bright pink, he pointed out. Yes, agreed Jennifer. And when you press this button on it, it calls out happy holidays in a squeaky voice, added her husband. It really does, trilled Jennifer delightedly. Hubby shook his head and went back to watching the telly. Though first he grumbled, that's not a Christmas tree, it's a Christmas twee. Munchable Masterworks Enjoying a lunchtime snack in one of those subway fast food diners in Glasgow city centre, Reader Hannah McDowell was amused to hear the Tannoy speaker refer to the worker preparing the food as a sandwich artist. He did a decent job stuffing hunks of food into slabs of bread, concedes Hannah, though I'm not sure that makes him a Del Deli Da Vinci. The other day, Reader Debbie Sullivan... Painful memories. The other day, Reader... Reader Debbie Sullivan was watching one of those TV programs about celebrities who go on a journey to discover more about their ancestors. We should do that, said Debbie to her husband on the sofa next to her, who merely grunted and said, No way. I only think about my roots when I get toothache. (laughs) Gusley's goings on. Over the last few days, we've mentioned the new diary book, which is for sale now. Though this year is extra special for diary fans, as we've also published a joke book called Laughter Lines, which includes a spooky little yarn such as the following from a reader who said, My roommate thinks our house is haunted, but I've lived here 400 years and never noticed a thing. Cold Customer, a daft panto gag published in the diary, reminds reader Jim Morrison of being a chief officer at sea and sailing with a chap named Ron Carney, who almost inevitably was known as Chili Ron Carney. Oh dear. <laughs> dear dirty secret. A shameful confession from reader Barry Wayne, who says, I used to be addicted to mud wrestling, though I've been clean for five years now. <laughs> that was by Lauren Jackson. The Herald, Friday the 2nd of December 2022, news. Barack Obama's favourite economist marks to century. This article is by Caroline Wilson. 
He has been cited as an influence by politicians including Gordon Brown, Barack Obama and Margaret Thatcher. Widely regarded as the first systematic account of a modern commercial economy, the wealth of nations is considered as relevant now as it was groundbreaking when it was published in 1776. Adam Smith's ideas and terminology pepper parliamentary debates and party manifestos centuries after they were written down. However, the so-called father of economics is as misunderstood as he is revered, says Dr Craig Smith, Adam Smith Senior Lecturer in the Scottish Enlightenment at the University of Glasgow. Usually, he says, by those who haven't actually read his groundbreaking treatise. It happens to these figures who become world figures, says Dr Smith. Everyone thinks they know what he thinks, and they don't, because they have never read it. It being the wealth of nations. There is an image of Adam Smith that exists in the world as a symbol for certain ideas, just as there is an image of Karl Marx that exists for certain ideas, and that caricature does have a divisive effect. Some people will not look at him, read him, or consider him because they think he is this evil proponent of selfishness and capitalism and defender of corporations. And the problem with that is when you do read him, he is not those things. Next year will mark the tea century of Smith's birth in Kirkcaldy, Fife on June 1723. His illustrious career began when he enrolled at the University of Glasgow, aged 14, which Dr Smith says was not that usual at that time. What was unusual about him, he says, was that he was extremely gifted, so much so that he went straight into second year. In 1740, Smith left to study at Oxford University, but 11 years later, he returned to his alma mater as a professor of logic, later becoming professor of moral philosophy. While at Glasgow, he published the first edition of the Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1759, which was considered a scientific breakthrough and provided the philosophical and economic foundation for his later works, including The Wealth of Nations. In it, Smith argues that moral ideas and actions are a product of our very nature as social creatures and that his social psychology is a better guide to moral action than reason. As individuals, we have a natural tendency to look after ourselves and yet as social creatures, explains Smith, we are also endowed with a natural sympathy. Today we would say empathy towards others. He is one of the first people to do, I suppose, what we would call social science and to apply that more widely than economics, says Dr Smith. If you are looking at his contribution to an academic discipline, it is probably economics where he has made the most impact because he produces the first systematic account 
of a modern commercial economy and comes up with all the terminology and concepts that still get used today. However, his contribution is so much more. One of his most famous quotes is, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. The central thesis of Smith's The Wealth of Nations is that our individual need to fulfil self-interest benefits society. He called the force behind this fulfilment the invisible hand. Self-interest and the division of labour in an economy, he wrote, result in mutual interdependencies that promote stability and prosperity through the market mechanism. He rejected government interference in market activities and believed that a government's three functions should be to protect national borders, enforce civil law and engage in public works such as education. Scholars have spent the last 50 years trying to get this across to people that there is more to Smith than the bits of Smith that are associated with this caricature, says the academic. If you look in the wealth of nations itself, you find a far more expansive role for the state than people would expect there to be. You find Smith advocating for state intervention in the provision of education, in the provision of public works and goods. You find him having his own theory of taxation and how the aims of taxation should be organised. In all of those kind of things, Smith has a more sophisticated notion of the role of the government and in particular he focuses on the impact on the working poor. The justification which he gives right at the start for markets and for commercial society is that it improves the living standards of the poorest. In effect, that's the justification for allowing people to pursue their own self-interests. It unintentionally helps the poorest. While he is primarily associated with economics, Dr Smith says there has been growing interest in his approach to morality. Barack Obama has referenced Smith's theory of moral sentiments in which he discusses the ability of human beings to empathise with people who are very different from themselves. More and more people in recent years have become interested in his accounts of how we become moral creatures and looking at him as someone who made genuine contributions to what we would call now moral psychology. So explaining how human beings become the kind of creatures that have beliefs about right and wrong. When The Wealth of Nations was published, Frederick North was the Tory Prime Minister widely regarded as a failure due to his association with Britain's catastrophic defeat in the American War of Independence, 1775 to 1783. What would Smith have made of today's Conservative government? It's always difficult to consider what a historical figure would do, says Dr Smith, but in the case of Smith there are some revealing clues. 
He definitely does not think Smith would not have approved of former Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous plan to borrow to fund £45 billion of tax cuts for the rich, while COVID furlough payments would have been a step too far in state intervention. He has quite a simple view in terms of how governments should behave and it basically parallels what people should do, says Dr Smith. Don't live beyond your means and always make sure you can organise your efforts in such a way that you get the best returns on them. He is someone who favours prudent and careful management of individuals but also for the state. Someone seen as being reckless or being radical he would be suspicious of it. He didn't talk about pandemics, obviously, but he talked about roles which the government would have in ensuring various kinds of regulations for how people live together. That, I think, he saw as a legitimate role for government. Whether he could have agreed with the government paying people's wages for two years, I think that would have been too radical for him. Dr Smith says many people are surprised when they discover Adam Smith was the Commissioner of Customs in Edinburgh. I think that's because he has this reputation as being pro-free market. They find that very odd. His father was the Commissioner in Kirkcaldy, so he is following a family tradition. I think he thought it was a way for him to be useful to do some public service. There's another thing that gets missed, again, because people don't really read what he says, and that is, he really doesn't like corporations. Our modern economy is typified by large multinational corporations, and Smith doesn't like them. He thinks they are dangerous because they can lobby and manipulate governments. So he attacks the East India Company, which was the biggest corporation in Britain at the time. He attacks colonialism, he attacks the empire. He's a critic of that. He thinks that within those corporations you create an incentive that leads to mismanagement. Where they are working for someone else and investing in other people's capital is one which creates incentives which are bound to be less effective for Smith. I think that whole section surprises people who go to the effort of reading it and thought he was this guy who supported big corporations and corporate power. And that's not true. The hero of the wealth of nations is a prudent, small-scale entrepreneur who lives within his own means. He said the long list of high-profile political figures who cite him as an influence was not that surprising because you can probably find something that matches with any part of anyone's political agenda. You can find somebody who stresses the free market part and someone who stressed the prudent use of taxation and government funds that Gordon Brown would talk about. The University of Glasgow is marking the 300th anniversary of the birth of one of its most famous graduates with a year-long celebration of his life work and influence. A host of events are planned across Scotland and around the world to inspire renewed discussion about Smith's ideas 
and consider if they can help answer some of the biggest challenges we face today. The programme includes talks by scholars from the London School of Economics, the Universities of Princeton and Harvard, and the University of Cambridge, and a new exhibition of significant and rare Smith-related artefacts, including letters, first edition books and material from the University of Glasgow's archives. Professor Sir Anton Muscatelli, Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Glasgow said, Adam Smith is one of our most famous alumni and he left an indelible impact on the University of Glasgow, on the fields of economics and moral philosophy and on the wider world. His studies and writings introduced new ideas, insights and concepts that shaped our understanding of economics today, but were revolutionary in their day. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Hello, this is your reader Jackie. This is The Herald on Monday the 5th of December 2022. News. Scotland's weather. Heavy snow and freezing nights forecast. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Temperatures are expected to plunge below minus 8 by the middle of the week with a warning of heavy snow in Scotland, the Met Office has forecast. Winds which are currently blowing from the east are expected to shift to the north, bringing an arctic chill to the country and below average temperatures for the time of year. A yellow snow warning is in place for Wednesday, which the Met Office is advising could cause disruption to road, bus and train journeys. Alex Burkill, Met Office meteorologist, warned temperatures overnight Wednesday into Thursday would drop to minus 7 or minus 8 or even colder. He said at the moment we have an easterly flow and as such our winds are coming from the east, and that is a cold direction, and it is cold out. However, from Tuesday onwards, we are going to get a northerly flow, so our winds coming from the north, that is Arctic air, leading to our temperatures dropping even further as we go through this week. It's going to turn even colder and feel even colder still, with temperatures well below average for the time of year, both by day and by night. The forecaster added we have a snow warning across the northern half of Scotland for Wednesday and that is when the snow showers coming from the north will be most impactful. They will probably start on Tuesday and we will see very significant snow in the north. It looks like it could last a week. The northerly flow is going to stay with us. It's not going to be particularly unsettled. So there will be some showers. It's mostly going to be largely dry but cold. From the middle of next week, there are some signs we may see some more unsettled weather with milder weather coming up from the south, but it's far away at the moment. At the moment, it is cloudy, meaning there won't be huge differences between daily highs and overnight lows. But as we go through this week, We will get that cold northerly flow with clearer skies, so sunny and crisp by day, but even colder at night. 
Temperatures dropped to minus 3.8 degrees at Drumnodrochet near Inverness on Saturday night, but should remain at about minus 2 at night time in Scotland for the next couple of days and a few degrees above freezing for the rest of the country until the cold snap arrives on Wednesday. Temperatures in the daytime should be about 8 or 9 degrees, dropping to 5 or 6 degrees as the week progresses. This article is by Jodie Harrison. This article is from the Herald on Monday the 5th of December 2022. It is from the opinion section and the headline is 60 years after Cuba, the nuclear threat lingers and the report is by Doug Marr. You would have to be my vintage to remember the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. I was still in secondary school but can recall pondering whether it was worth revising for an upcoming exam if we were to be vaporised in an imminent nuclear conflict. Nuclear war was a hot topic at the school debating society. My lefty leanings on disarmament failed to win over many contemporaries. Bloodied but unbowed, I continued to support Gerald Holtom's iconic CND lapel badge. Looking back, it's remarkable how angst over nuclear weapons has diminished. The small permanent presence at Fastlane is a far cry from the heady days of 1961 and 1962. CND marches from London to the Atomic Weapons Research Facility at Aldermaston attracted 150,000 people. Today, nuclear weapons and disarmament don't resonate with the young. They have other concerns, principally the environment and climate change. A 1960s Greta Thunberg would have been leading protests about global nuclear destruction rather than global warming. The 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis has revived interest in the standoff that brought the world to the brink of nuclear conflict. Abyss, by journalist and historian Sir Max Hastings, provides a new and authoritative account of that 1962 white-knuckle ride. Fidel Castro, Che Guevara and their fellow Barbudos were romantic figures to my adolescent and, it must be said, naive young self. They were revolutionary rock stars. Not surprisingly, US President Kennedy saw things differently. Castro represented an unwelcome communist intrusion into his backyard. The 1961 Bay of Pigs fiasco was a clumsy CIA effort to evict an unwelcome and noisy neighbour. Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev up the stakes by locating intermediate-range missiles on Cuba, less than 100 miles from the Florida Keys. As Khrushchev pointed out, NATO and the US had already ringed the Soviet Union with similar devices. They still do. What was sauce for the goose and all that? Perhaps Khrushchev was surprised his actions proved unacceptable to the US. No one else was. A US naval blockade was imposed to prevent installation of more missiles, Kennedy demanded removal of those already there. Pentagon hawks pressed for an immediate air assault, followed by a ground invasion. For 13 days in October 1962, the world held its breath. Hastings suggests local commanders, such as Soviet submarine captains, had astonishing authority to use tactical nuclear weapons. Nuclear 
Torpedoes, for example, would have devastated US surface vessels, leading to certain escalation. Good sense, statesmanship and luck eventually prevailed in Moscow and Washington, if not in Havana. The Russian ships turned back and Soviet missiles were removed from Cuban soil. Well, what's the relevance of that now ancient history? Principally, Ukraine represents a similar threat to world peace. While Cuba was a crisis in the US backyard, Ukraine is a similar crisis in Russia's immediate neighbourhood. Russia retains the Soviet Union's sense of victimhood and grievance. President Putin makes no secret of his intention to redress the balance. Threats of battlefield nuclear weapons reflect his miscalculation and increasing desperation. It's sometimes forgotten. Small nukes are capable of more devastation than those used against Japan in 1945. Retaliation and escalation would be inevitable. Worryingly, the global situation is even more unstable than it was in 1962. The Soviet presidium reined Khrushchev in and made him pay the political price for his folly. Putin, whom Hastings describes as angry and half-deranged, appears to experience fewer constraints. Similar autocratic regimes in China and North Korea and emergence of the near-fascist right in the US creates a volatile and unstable mix. There are plenty of historical precedents, such as 1914, in which the main players lost control of events. As Hastings points out, just because potential belligerents don't want nuclear war doesn't mean it won't happen. The world got lucky in 1962. Sixty years later, we have taken our eye off the nuclear ball. The Ukraine crisis demands management by cool heads and statementship that may or may not be present. Kiev is no place for showboating politicians seeking photo opportunities. Global warming may be the greatest threat to human survival. That can change in a flash, literally. That report was by Doug Marr. From the Herald... Tuesday the 6th of December 2022, from the news section. Auto manufacturing returns to Scotland with electric off-roader. By Christy Dorsey. An all-electric 4x4 designed specially for some of the dirtiest all-terrain work is set to become the first light vehicle manufactured in Scotland in more than four decades. The co-founders of Monroe are looking to raise approximately £15 million to set up a larger factory in central Scotland following last night's first viewer of the Monroe Mark I. Engineered to allow sectors such as mining, construction, utilities, agriculture and defence to decarbonise, the vehicle features a 1,000 kilogram payload, 3,500 kilogram towing capacity and a 16-hour off-road duty cycle on a single battery charge. Currently based in East Kilbride, Munro was set up in 2019 by Chief Executive Russell Peterson and Ross Anderson, the company's head of powertrain. Mr Peterson, who previously ran a software business in Edinburgh, said the venture has been very much a hobby project during an off-road camping trip in the Highlands. We had already taken measures to reduce our own environmental footprints and had a lot of experience driving our own EV and got quite used to the instant torque delivery, he said. 
but the off-roader we were driving through the highlands was combustion engined and it was really struggling on the steep climbs so we were musing how much better it would be with an electric motor. On the return journey we stopped at a cafe in Bremar where a bank of 50 kilowatt rapid chargers were sitting empty and unused. Parked up nearby was a large group of combustion engine safari adventure 4x4s of a type that are no longer manufactured and will have to be replaced eventually. It dawned on us that there was a gap in the market for an electric-powered four-wheel drive utilitarian workhorse. Munro has taken orders for about 45 vehicles to be delivered next year and is looking to expand into a purpose-built facility in 2024 with capacity to produce up to 2,500 units annually. Mr Peterson said the company expects to add 15 people to its current workforce of eight during the next six months and ultimately aims to employ 300 people. We are trying to get there for 2027, he said. It really depends on market adoption and uptake. Work on its first pre-production vehicles will begin in the second quarter of next year, making Monroe the first automotive manufacturer to build cars in Scotland since Peugeot Talbot closed its Linwood plant in 1981. Munro is currently in the middle of a Series A funding round to raise about £15 million from a mixture of private investment and public funding, having earlier this year secured its first equity injection of £750,000 from Elbow Beach Capital. Mr Peterson and Mr Anderson currently remain majority shareholders. Elbow Beach totally got our mission, and they are also about finding solutions for agriculture and other carbon-intensive industries, Mr Peterson said. They knocked on the door, and we weren't really looking for funding, but then we both had exactly the same mission, so it made sense to collaborate. The company is looking for a larger site in need of rejuvenation to keep the carbon impact of its new facility at a minimum. A couple of sites in central Scotland are currently under consideration where Mr Peterson believes there is an underutilised manufacturing workforce that would be attracted by the prospect of exercising their creativity. We believe the supply chain is definitely maturing in the sectors we are in, he said. When you look at battery technology, for example, there are local suppliers now that are looking into supplying lithium-ion batteries, so we think the supply chain is there and we think the workforce is there as well. The company has received orders from the UK, Switzerland, St Lucia and Dubai and has several pre-sale agreements with industry fleet operators. There has been strong initial interest from energy suppliers in particular. These diesel pickup trucks are killing our CO2 targets and there is just no production ready alternative and that's where we see the gap, Mr Peterson said. A lot of these utility companies, if they don't need the off-road ability, then they've already replaced it with an electric van. From the Herald, Tuesday the 6th of December 2022, from the News section. Labour tries to force release of Covid records linked to Michelle Moan. By Kathleen Nutt. Labour will today try to force the UK government to release records about the award of Covid PPE contracts to a company linked to the Tory peer Michelle Moan. It follows reports suggesting Glasgow-born Baroness Moan may have profited from PPE MedPro winning public contracts worth more than £200 million to supply personal protective equipment after she recommended it to ministers in the early days of the pandemic. Labour will present a humble address motion 
to force a binding Commons vote to secure the release of documents relating to the deals to the Public Accounts Committee. Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner urged Conservative MPs to back the vote or be complicit in a cover-up of inexcusable profiteering by Tory cronies. The move comes after Matt Hancock accused the former Lajri tycoon of extraordinarily aggressive lobbying in support of a Covid contract for another firm that made lateral flow tests. The disgraced former UK Health Secretary said the peer sent him a threatening message complaining the firm had not secured a deal. In his new book, The Pandemic Diaries, Mr Hancock said by the end of her email she had worked herself into a complete frenzy. Lady Moan is under investigation by the Lords Commissioners for Standards for allegedly not declaring an interest in PPE Medro. The Guardian last week reported she and her children received £29 million originating from profits of the company, despite her repeatedly denying any role or function in the company, and her lawyer saying she was not connected to PPE Medpro in any capacity. Ms Rayner said, Britain is sick of being ripped off by the Tories. We want our money back. Tory MPs can either back Labour's binding vote to force ministers to come clean on the murky award of £203 million in taxpayers' money to a shady company linked to a Tory peer, or they are choosing to be complicit in a cover-up. The VIP lane for PPE is a scandal of epic proportions that has allowed the shameful waste of taxpayers' money and inexcusable profiteering by Tory cronies. The PA Newsagents Agency said representatives for Baroness Moan declined to comment. In his diaries, being serialised in the Daily Mail, Mr Hancock wrote, Baroness Michelle Moan has sent me an extraordinarily aggressive email complaining that the company she's helping isn't getting the multi-million pound contracts it deserves. By the end of the message, she seemed to have worked herself into a complete frenzy and was throwing around wild accusations. Was she threatening me? It certainly looked that way. Mr Hancock said inquiries revealed the unnamed firm Lady Moan was representing had not won any contracts because it had not passed the relevant tests. The peer and her husband, Douglas Barrowman, have repeatedly denied any wrongdoing. This article was by Kathleen Nutt. From the Herald, Tuesday the 6th of December 2022, from the opinion section. £7,500 grant. Could it finally be time to get a heat pump? By Vicky Allen. The messages have been fairly muddled till now. We all know we're supposed to be getting off natural gas heating, but there's been more heat than light on how to do it. Now, however, we may be at a tipping point. We may look back on 2022 as the year when heat pumps, a technology that is essentially the reverse of refrigeration, properly broke through globally. For analysts are saying it's the year of the heat pump. In fact, the International Energy Agency has just issued a report which declared heat pumps powered by low-emissions electricity, are the central technology in the global transition to secure and sustainable heating. Only you would hardly think so, given the number of heat pumps installed across the UK. Recently published figures suggest just 280,000 installed across the country, the lowest rate in 2021 in Europe. A report by the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit found that UK gas imports would be a fifth lower 
if UK had deployed heat pumps at the same rate as Estonia. Hence, we should welcome the announcement this week by Patrick Harvey that the Scottish Government is offering owner-occupiers £7,500 grants to take up a heat pump, as well as an additional £7,500 to install energy efficiency measures in their homes. Those in rural areas will also qualify for an extra £1,500 for heat pumps. With this money, more barriers to homeowners making the shift to, heat to pump is gone. Previously, applicants were required to sign up for a loan before getting funding. It's not surprising really that few of us so far have made the leap. I've long known we need to wean ourselves off gas heating, but have still to ditch my gas boiler. Until now, heat pumps look risky, unusual and unaffordable at between £7,000 and £13,000. But suddenly, more and more people are talking about their brand new heat pumps. Among them is Neil Kitching, author of the book Carbon Choices, and of a regular blog. He has been describing his home electrification project, which included first an electric car and charger, solar panels, and then a 7 kilowatt heat pump. Kitching claimed a £7,500 grant plus a £2,500 loan from Home Energy Scotland. He found that the process of getting grants, loans, quotes and installation required huge motivation and recommended that there should be a subsidised service to help the homeowner to clearly specify their needs, including heat loss calculations, a one-stop shop. Kitching's home seemed reasonably appropriate for such an installation. 1960s built and recently upgraded in terms of insulation, including some cavity worn insulation. But many houses are not so appropriate, particularly our old and drafty tenements, which make up 77,000 homes in Glasgow and 182,000 in Edinburgh. Their structures, condition and the multiple forms of ownership make them one of the big challenges in terms of net zero emission targets. I don't live in a tenement, but I do live in an Edinburgh double upper, which shares some of the tenement's problems. And what is interesting to see is that there may be progress even on such buildings. The first tenement retrofit, including heat pumps, has recently been completed by a pioneering architect agency in a housing association building on Nidri Road, Glasgow. But still I find reason to stall. Perhaps it's laziness, or perhaps it's because our government has taken so long to put up the signposts for how we get ourselves off natural gas. It let hydrogen muddy the boiler water. We are now starting to see the direction of travel. This grant represents one of those signposts, as does an analysis by Jan Rosenau, which found in a review of 32 independent studies that none of them provides evidence which would support the case for widespread use of hydrogen for heating. In other words, if you're holding back on getting a heat pump because you're still wondering if the future might be hydrogen, don't. Perhaps take a look at a recent report authored by Louise Sutherland and Duncan Gibb entitled Take the Burn Out of Heating for Low-Income Households. Sutherland is clear about what technologies she sees as being cost-effective in the long term, and these are heat pumps and district heat. The report also expresses concern that as wealthier households switch to new forms of heating, low-income households are likely to find themselves stranded on increasingly expensive fossil fuels or hydrogen. Sunderland's paper is a reminder that there is another option too, 
district heating. A more collective approach is possible. I welcome this grant, but the drive to decarbonise homes has to push harder again. It has to work for everyone and signal a way in which we all move together rather than one by one. This article was by Vicky Allen. Recorded from the Herald on the 6th of December 2022. From the Sports section. Recorded by Amy. Why did Andrea Agnelli and the Juventus board resign? By Liam Bryce. What happened? Last week, Juventus President Andrea Agnelli and Vice President Pavel Nedved resigned alongside the entire board of directors. A club statement said, The board of directors, considering the focus and relevance of the pending legal and technical accounting issues, have deemed it in the best interest to recommend that Juventus adopt a new board of directors to deal with these issues. Those who resigned are board members Lawrence Debro, Massimo Della Ragone, Catherine Fink, Daniela Marlingo, Francesca Rincaglio, Giorgio Tacchia, and Suzanne Keywood. Why have they resigned? The remarkable development comes after the club's financial affairs were placed under the microscope by prosecutors and financial regulator CONSOB for alleged false accounting and communication. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the club deferred salary payments for 23 players and it's alleged they were later paid in the black to allow the club to avoid tax, and statements were allegedly falsified to make out the books had been balanced. Juventus have denied any wrongdoing. However, the outgoing board considered to be in the best social interest to recommend that Juventus equip itself with a new board of directors to address these issues. Who is Andrea Agnelli? Agnelli has been Juventus president since 2010, where he became the fourth member of his family to assume the position, following in the footsteps of his father, grandfather and uncle. The 49-year-old has also been a prominent figure in the politics of European football and was appointed chairman of the European Club Association in 2010. He was a key driving force behind the failed European Super League, with Juventus one of only three clubs alongside Barcelona and Real Madrid not to have disavowed the project. Who has replaced him? Juventus have confirmed Gianluca Ferraro as Agnelli's successor. The 59-year-old economics expert was the preferred candidate of the club's holding company, Exor. Mauricio Scanfino has been named the new chief executive. That article was by Liam Bryce. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 6th of December 2022, from the Voices section, Opinion, Why Access to Libraries and Books Are a Human Right for Children? By Danny Scott. A library outranks any other one thing in a community can do can do to benefit its people. It is a never failing spring in a desert. Those are the words of Dunfermline born Andrew Carnegie, a man who put his money where his mouth was by funding lending libraries across Scotland. As a condition to funding, councils had to adopt the Public Libraries Act, applied in Scotland from eighteen fifty three. Fast forward to twenty twenty two and cuts to library services and school librarians are a constant threat for many communities in Scotland and the rest of the UK. Andrew Carnegie would be appalled, and so should we. Why? A community needs hundreds of daily interactions to thrive. As high streets are slowly uploaded to the cloud, and bank branches vanish, there are fewer and fewer places for connection in our villages, towns and cities. Countering this are libraries. Libraries build communities. They bring generations together in a space 
in a way very few other places can manage, from babies at boot bug sessions, through to teenagers at after school clubs, to older generations engaged in community groups. Even in a forecast second tunnel of austerity, closing libraries or cutting school librarians shouldn't be on the table. They're a symbolic place. They signal that we, as a society, believe in meritocracy. They show that we believe everyone can and does have the ability to read themselves to a better life. As Dr. Zeus said, the more they read, the more you will know. The more you learn, the more places you go. Dr. Zeus's words are perhaps more pertinent for the children's libraries. It feels like a no-brainer that children should have access to books, and especially young children, as that is often where a lifelong love of reading is formed. The natural response of some might be to point out that children have plentiful access to books at school, but that is a dangerous assumption to make. The Primary School Library Alliance recently reported that 25% of primary schools in Scotland do not have a designated library area, the highest proportion of the UK's nations. Furthermore, 48% of UK schools that had no dedicated library space said that their pupils' reading is restricted by limited library resources and the availability of books. With that in mind, I delved into the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, signed by the UK in April 1990 and ratified by all UN member states except the USA and Somalia in 1992, to see if there was a strong argument in there for protecting local libraries and school librarians. It didn't take long to find evidence to support the argument. Here are the five articles which support my case. Article 6. Life, Survival and Development Every child has a right to life. Governments must do all they can to ensure that children survive and develop to their full potential. If we are truly doing all we can to ensure our children can develop to their full potential, we must provide them with free access to books through libraries and by other means. By the time they reach 8 years old, every child born in Scotland will have received 16 books from the Scottish Book Trust Bookbug and Read-Write Count programmes. This can be a vital intervention. For some families, these books will be the only ones their children own. When you can't afford to heat your home or put food on your table, buying books is naturally a long way down your priority list. That is why our Christmas appeal is so important. Article 13. Freedom of Expression Every child must be free to express their thoughts and opinions and to access all kinds of information as long as this is within the law. Today a reader, tomorrow a leader, said American women's rights advocate Margaret Fuller. Thoughts and opinions aren't formed in a vacuum. They need fuel. Libraries are a nutritious buffet for a young brain. Where else can you access all kinds of information from the internet to books, audiobooks, magazines and films? Article 17. Access to information from the media. Every child has the right to reliable information from a variety of sources and government should encourage the media to provide information that children can understand. Governments must help protect children from materials that could harm them. It is one thing to expect the media to provide information children can understand, but it means nothing without access. Libraries provide more than just books. There are magazines, comics, safe internet access, films, music, the list goes on. Magazine subscriptions for children are expensive. Library cards are free. Article 27. Adequate standard of living. Every child has a right to a standard of living that is good enough to meet their physical and social needs and support their development. Governments must help families who cannot afford to provide this. 
If we truly care about supporting the social needs and development of every child, no matter their economic circumstances, then free access to books, events, films and music are vital. Anyone who's read to a small child knows how quickly they can tire of the same stories. If you didn't have access to a library, imagine the cost of keeping your child's imagination fired by stories. Article 31. Leisure, Play and Culture Every child has a right to relax, play and take part in a wide range of cultural and artistic activities. Reading is not only play, but one of the most relaxing hobbies there is. Local libraries are the cultural hubs of the communities they serve, and often safe havens in schools. Where I grew up, the only warm cultural venue outside of school was a 45-minute bus ride away. By investing in our libraries, we're saying that we value cultural activity for everyone. It's a powerful message. It says a lot about who we are and the country we aspire to be. And that was an opinion piece by Danny Scott, who is the head of social and digital marketing at Scottish Book Trust and the author of Scotland Stars FC, a series of six football-filled chapter books aimed at young readers aged 6 to 8. Find out more about the books at discoverkelpies.co.uk Follow Danny on Twitter at sign asimpledan And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.